Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us. We are back. It's 2022, believe it or not. I found it hard to uh, come to terms with that myself, but it is. Uh, in the studio with me is Chris KP. Good morning, sir. Hello there. How are you this fine day? I'm good. Can you just confirm that it is 2022? Uh, that's what I've been telling everyone. So uh, I can't confirm that it is, but I can confirm that we have our, um, our watches calibrated. Oh, very good. And a big thank you to the teams that took care of the airways for us while many of us were on a break over the summer. We very much appreciate that. And we hope you enjoyed all of these shows. I think some of them are still going, but uh, all the shows that have been on whilst us older all the teams, is that the right way to say? Um, they're still hanging, <laughs> hanging around. Uh, we took a bit of a bit of a break, which was nice. But uh, Chris KP, have you had a good break? I have, I have. It's and it's been uh, it, it's been very home based, but, but I love it. I've done things, small things. No one else would give a rat's to hooty, frankly. But I've been doing little things bit by bit. Took a bit of time off uh, off my um, wage and salary earning tasks. <laughs> It's been good. Yeah, enjoying it. And the weather's been almost perfect too. Not too horribly hot. Very good. Well, we're going to get straight into some news. And then after that, uh, Chris KP has got a bit of a story for us. And later in the show, we'll be speaking to Professor Nancy Baxter um, from the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. And we'll be talking all about the pandemic and some of the things that are happening at the moment and getting Nancy's insights into that. But I wanted to start off, Chris, just by talking about this enormous volcanic eruption that has Mm. occurred in January and it's interesting to me, I'm not sure how many people know this, but um, and, until just a few years back, um, this, this volcano, which is very close to Tonga, uh, was actually made up of two islands, or at least there were two little islands that are peaking above the surface of the water. And so when you hear the name now, Hunga Tonga, Hunga Hapai, it's actually the composite of two separate islands that have now mm. connected and are in, that's why there's such a, a longer name because it has, has um, two pieces to it, which were then connected. Um, but it's, it's, it's fascinating because this volcano, which we see the little, little bit of just above the water, it's actually about two kilometers high. It is wow. enormous. Um, wow. Even more impressive is its girth. It is, <laughs> it's 20 kilometers wide. So it's an incredibly large structure and it's actually, um, it, it's one of those scenarios where we, we wouldn't have seen the eruption if we were just looking at it because the eruption occurred about maybe somewhere between 100 and 150 metres below the surface of the water. And as you well know, Chris, if you superheat water very, very rapidly, mm. uh, the change in volume when you go from water to steam is extraordinary. Yeah. And so a big part of why this explosion was so ex- so you know extreme and so large was because of that rapid change in volume where you, you turn water into steam. And believe it or not, the... Um, that that sort of big burst that the mushroom cloud that we saw um, reached up to uh, somewhere between thirty and forty kilometers. Mm. So that's above the weather level. You know, we we don't have weather up there. That's yeah. you know, that's, that's yeah. very very high up. 
And so it's just incredible to see that. But one of the things I found, you know, extraordinary about this and, and you know, what, what I'm not going to do is talk about um, what's been happening on Tonga because, you know, there's there's been just devastation on many of the, I think it's several hundred islands make up Tonga. Mm. I'm not sure exactly. I don't remember exactly how many, but it's a very large number. And many of those have been devastated by this. It's it's quite um, quite extraordinary just how widespread the, the damage is. And I think information on that is still coming coming in. Uh, partly because the the um, underwater, you know, um, cable, the telecommunications optical cable seems to have been severed. Uh, so there's there's you know satellite phone communication, but not a lot of that. You know, there's the bandwidth there is is much lower. So a lot of the information coming out is is very slow. But one of the things that we saw, and, and most people have seen this, was some of this extraordinary satellite imagery of the shock wave that emanated outwards from the main mushroom cloud shortly after, in the hours after the explosion occurred. And that was travelling at more than a 1,000 kilometres per hour. And it was heard um, all over the world. In fact, if you if you had uh, you were able to measure finely enough, you would find it did a several laps of, of the world. Wow. Um, but people did hear it in New Zealand. People hear it you know, in parts of Australia. It was an extraordinarily loud explosion, sonic boom, essentially. And um, and you know, reverberated around the world as as did the the sort of impact on the ocean itself. So the tsunamis that were caused. And in fact, two people actually died, believe it or not, all the way over in Peru um, in the surf. So this has been a, you know widespread, um, relatively poorly reported, I would say, disaster of epic proportions. Um, one of the largest explosions of its type in in the modern era. Yeah, I, I had um, I was struck by. Two things. One was that you just said was that it was so underreported. What was out there visually is extraordinary, but there wasn't a lot of noise in the mainstream media uh, for mm. the longest time. But the other was looking at that satellite footage. I immediately just, I mean, I didn't know the uh, the velocity you just gave us, but I'm going, that's a large piece of the Earth. And I can mm. see, you know, with my human eyes, I can see this wave ripping across the surface. That's just, it's, it's a nice little sort of, um, it's a nice little reminder of humanity. Yeah. It's a little Just bit, of, you know, we're little. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, look, there's a lot of there's a lot of efforts going on, of course, to support the Tonga people and and, and surrounding areas that are affected. Uh, but this is something that is going to have to watch very carefully. Of course, it is in that section of the um of the world where the Pacific Plate is is running underneath the Australian tectonic plate. And that entire, you know, ring of fire region there that we, we uh-huh. see so many volcanoes, subsurface volcanoes. Um, but I, I think it's just extraordinary, the idea that this thing is 20 kilometers wide, two kilometers high, and, mm. <laughs> um, you know, just peaking above the surface. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, the iceberg analogy might be replaced with this volcano in time, <laughs> the volcano time to come because, <laughs> uh, because so much of it is below the, below the surface of the water. So anyway, uh, what have you got, Chris? Uh, well, you know, look, listeners will be shocked to hear um, that we don't plan this show uh, and rehearse it for, for weeks in advance, uh, generally because of the quality of it, but especially because um, the bit of news that caught my attention was also about um, the geography of the Earth and to do with uh, with plate tectonics, in fact. And I was reminded of when I was in first year geography at uni and we'd been done a whole unit on plate tectonics and it was all it was very interesting and it was all all good but then right in the very last lecture the lecturer explained to us that all this stuff is a theory right it might get replaced by a better one at any point and because that hadn't really occurred to me i just took it all as gospel and it was really quite a um for, for a science undergraduate actually quite an important moment to go no 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 don't get overexcited go with the best evidence you've got but <laughs> 
we don't have a lot of, you know, a lot to, to sort of conclusively um, delineate. This is the best we've got at the moment. Anyway, the reason I mention that is that even given traditional plate tectonics and the way we understand that it works, um, it, it's, it's based on the idea that there are convection uh, currents moving around underneath the surface of the, underneath the plates, which at particular points can draw plates under or over, and that's where you get all this activity. And, and it's a result of this convection is why the plates actually move around. But even people who understand that theory well accept that there probably isn't enough energy down there to do all the moving that we see. It's kind of, it's one of the, the weaknesses in the theory. Um, however, there's a, a new paper um, coming out that's come out published by the Geological Society of America, which basically says that convection like that applies to liquids, doesn't really apply to solid stuff as well. Mm. Basically, you want to move solid stuff, you need forces. Um, you know, you need something that's different uh, and probably bigger, if you like, if I can put it that bluntly. Uh, and what they've come up with is really interesting. They've basically said that the Earth's plates may be shifting because of the nature of the, the, the force relationship, the gravitational relationship between the Earth and the moon and the sun. So as you know, the moon rotates around the Earth um, and there's, a, there's a, a center of mass between those two, which is known as the barycenter. And that center of mass, it's not one point. It moves, it oscillates about 600 kilometers per month, which means, of course, that the gravitational relationship between the Earth and the moon isn't simple. It's moving. Um, and of course, then there's the uh, just the forces of the Earth spinning on its own axis, and then there's the Sun that's affecting both of them. So you can see it in inherently unstable environment, even if it's predictable. And their argument is that yeah, this is actually you know the the you know the warm, thick interior layers can withstand the stresses from that kind of gravitational change, but the bits on the outside, the brittle bits, don't do that very well. And in fact, they can be moved um, and shift across each other. So they reckon that's an alternative. It doesn't change plate tectonics but it changes the mechanism for the movement of the plates which is nice but of course at that point i'm going yeah okay is that just another theory do i have to just put that in in my first year geography notes and the answer is yes um, but they had the same question how does one go about proving this and their argument right now one of their arguments is that one way to test this would be to do a really detailed examination of the tectonics of pluto mm. because it's, you know, it's it's yep. too small and too cold to have convection, if you like, but it's got a pretty young surface. So there might be some idea there of going, to what extent can gravitational effects affect uh, tectonics and to what extent do we need to rely upon convection um, uh, systems below the surface? So there you go. Um, some tectonic plate movement may be changing, or at least our understanding of why it does what it does. Very cool. And Pluto's got a nice big mood, Sharon, right nearby. Um, yeah. to, to yep. cover it off. Well, it's interesting. I've got a book down uh, in my home somewhere on a shelf, which was written in the 50s, and it mm -hmm. has this great description of how mountains are formed using the the, the the fact at the time that the earth was cooling down and shrinking oh, yes. like an apple. And just like a shrunken apple, you get these ridges. And <laughs> um, I'm hanging on to it. It might come back. I suspect it won't. That's but, uh, great. It's an interesting old piece of science. It was such a That's beautiful, lovely. beautiful piece of communication. It was really clear. People could imagine it. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons why these things end up um, being accepted. Now, before we uh, get into your story, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, what's happening at the moment with schools. We have schools returning over the next week. Um, some students coming back in, in this coming week, um, some the Monday after, which is the, the main day of return. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to look back a bit to um, to term four. We 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 had a number of guests on Einstein and Gago, and we were talking about the things that we needed during the Delta outbreak um, to keep schools safe. We knew we needed vaccination rates to be higher. We knew we needed um, ventilation and HEPA filters, which were you know uh, supposedly being um, rolled out, and, and some other stuff. You know, QR coding, contacts. You know, making mm-hmm. sure we knew who was contact. Uh, con- you know, close contacts, um, making sure that, you know, we kept those in place, the testing, all, all those other things and, you know, hand hygiene, that being, I, I suppose, a little less important than we once once thought now. But, of course, um, very few of these things were in place and Term 4 was heavily disrupted as a result, um, causing, you know, a, lo- a lot of stress, actually, um, because yeah. of the randomness of it. You know, it's one thing to get everyone back in the classroom, but it's another thing to randomly get a call um, from a school principal yeah. saying, come and get your kid today. No, I don't really care about what you're doing with work. We can't help this. We've got to do this. So, you know, and now we're in a situation with Omicron where the numbers have just exploded. And in a week's time, of course, um, you know, despite some commentary around the idea of the term mild being used, which I strongly object to, um, this is one of the biggest failures in science communication we've seen so far during this pandemic. Um, It is certainly different to Delta, but the term mild, which often has a clinical meaning, has a very different meaning when the public hear it. Um, And that's not something that's okay. So heading into, you know, term one, week one, as we're about to do, um, we have uh, our vaccination requirements now have changed. We now need a third dose as adults. Um, The vax of the five to 12-year-olds, of course, has also changed. And we now have a situation where that is... Now, you know, um, one, one dose is sort of happening. Um, two doses is still, the period is still eight weeks, which is odd. Um, hopefully, Atagi will bring that back and realize we're actually in outbreak conditions, which was their definition of when you needed to drop that period. That hasn't happened yet. And, of course, ventilation hasn't really occurred in many schools, partly because, frankly, a lot of schools can't even open their windows. Um, other schools that can open their windows have all the windows on one side of the room. Um, the mm. HEPA filters have arrived for some schools, but there's probably not going to be enough. And that's that's an issue as well. And, of course, we're now talking about N95 masks being needed because Omicron just cuts through all the others. And I'm not sure if you've tried, Chris, but if you're trying to order some online right now, you will struggle. They are, they are very, yeah. very hard to get. So let's do some of the numbers. There are about a million students in Melbourne and Victoria generally about to return to school over the next couple of weeks. Let's say, let's say just for example, there's about 25 kids per class. Mm-hmm. That's the equivalent of 40,000 or slightly more than 40,000 classes, or as I like to call them, very confined restaurants. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, we know that the compliance of mask wearing with kids is going to be low, especially in primary. It's not going to be great. So I think what we have at the moment is a situation where we need a plan that really takes into account a few things. One being the safety of our teachers and the school staff. At the moment, that doesn't look good. And, you know, we've had many, many scenarios where we know that people are working from home in other industries and so forth, and we haven't allowed people to go into situations where there is, you know, there's a large number of cases uh, unless there are protections in place. With the protections in place, you know, we're, we're going to have to deal with this at some stage. That's that's one thing, but we're about to send these teachers back just maybe past the peak 
of, of case numbers with very few of these mitigations in place. And I think what we need to really be doing is saying, is that okay? Is that okay for teachers to be in that environment? Is that okay for the rest of the staff to be in that environment as well? And that's before we even start talking about the kids and the families. And on top of that, you have a very large number of people and not insignificant number of people who have other health issues, are immunocompromised, and we are not taking care of them at the moment by sending everyone back. So there's a lot to do. Uh, there's still a lot of work. I, I personally feel that we should have a short delay in, in the start of school, similar to what South Australia and Queensland are doing. Um, a few weeks here and there will give us a lot of room to move with getting second doses into some of the young kids. We're doing more in ventilation and just making sure that all our teachers have their, their third dose where, where they can access it short delay. I'm desperate to get my kids back into the classroom. I think it's really important that they learn. But what I don't want to see is a scenario where their their learning is continually disrupted when mm. we open up with very few mitigations in place and a huge caseload here in Melbourne. And the same same thing in Sydney, of course, as well. This would be this would be, you know, a bit of an error in my view and something that's short-sighted, we're going to have to deal with this sooner or later. We're going to have to do these upgrades. So why not do it at the start before things get out of control? The other thing is that if we are, as as we expect, close to or, you know, in the region of the peak um, right now, you know, it's let's face it, it's the worst time mathematically to be doing anything. And, and I reckon there's an industrial question here too, that if and when there are cases or close contacts or cases and close contacts in schools, do we even have the the people that is the education professionals to step into the breach and we've seen this in other industry where it's like well it, you reckon it's bad when it when you get a case it's worse when you still can't actually carry on uh, and as you say that leads to a disruption even if it's only a local one for the people in that school that's a massive issue for the families in that school it's a huge issue so I, yes i think that there are there are a number of questions there i don't know I don't know how easily, you know, in a political sense, how easily a government can go, actually, hang on, we've changed our mind, mm. or a department for that matter. I have no idea how that rolls. Um, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they, what they do in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And we, look, we did see a good example of this uh, this week with the IVF um, yep. scenario. And uh, there was a turnaround there. You know, a mistake was made. It was quickly yep. collected. Excellent. You know, bravo. Um, well done for correcting a mistake so quickly. I, I, I yeah. really applaud that. Agree. Uh, the, the other thing that we need to keep in mind here too with regards to the schools is schools are complex communities. Every single one is different. Every single yeah. one has different resources as well. They're not all well-resourced. Some of them are very poorly resourced. And when we have problems like this, it does seem to impact you know, the, the poorest members of our society the fastest. And we've seen that already with some of the outbreaks last year and where they were where they were distributed and what sort of healthcare provisions were available for mm. those individuals. So, you know, we need to we need to take an approach here that makes sure even even the, the, the schools with the least resources are taken care of. And I think making sure also those those of our teachers who have various health health issues are not just left behind. I mean one of the things I'd love to see and you probably agree with this agree with this given all the work you do chris but i would love to see a group of 30 to 50 teachers they could be some that are immune compromised that don't want to go back into the classroom employed by the government to run sort of webinar based or tv based mm. programs all day for every class level consistent with the curriculum at least it would be a consistent individual that they could see each day if it wasn't their primary teacher what they don't want is a scenario where the kids are seeing someone different every day that doesn't yeah. know what they're up to has no concept of the even the social balance within the classroom or any of the nuances that make teaching so hard uh, we can't yeah. just you can't just change that 
overnight and expect it to all work. So there's a lot we can do that, which would be, I think, really powerful. Takes a bit of will. Um, if we have the will to do it, we can get it done. We've had a lot of time. And I think if we just delay it a little bit now, you know, a bit of a hybrid. Some kids will still be in school. That happened last mm. year. Even mm. when we were doing remote learning, there were still kids in school. Bit of a hybrid for a few weeks. We can get on top of this and, you know, go back in a way that's far more manageable and less random for parents, kids, teachers, school staff, the works. So that's the end of my little rant on schools. Uh, some people know <laughs> I've, I've been doing this, but uh, <laughs> we really, you know, our whole show is based on science and education. Uh. And it all starts in schools. So they're an important, really important part of our community that I think have been denigrated for far too long. They're relatively poorly paid. And we mm. need we need to support them as much as possible um, as a society. So there we go. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> your your turn, sir. Uh, you pre- <laughs> you've prepared some some interesting stuff for us. Well, <laughs> look, it's uh, again, it's it's not about COVID, right? However, let me just say that, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we can get we get can and should be getting um, our our booster shots, and I have, um, and I'm very happy with that. I have no complaints. It's all good. I have just one small irritation, and that is that in the last couple of days, the Victorian government announced that they were going to give people ice creams uh, if they went to get their COVID shot. And I'm a big fan of um, vaccinations and ice cream, as it happens. So yeah. you know, it's it's a, it's a scenario made for me, and I've missed out, but I'm fine. That's okay. Yeah. But it did make me think: Why haven't we had? ice cream style vans just dancing around the community playing well green sleeves or come on eileen <laughs> over a teeny machine and giving people vac shots like, to me it seems obvious you know what's really funny we did <laughs> there actually was vaccination buses in regional victoria and in new zealand i believe actually uh, which is great there's nothing there's few things greater than the idea of an ice cream tuck vaccination um, machine however I want to talk about ice cream because I think it's, it is one of the finest things in the universe. It's one of humanity's greatest inventions. It's really interesting um, and it's really popular. We eat a lot of it. Let me chuck a stat at you. In Australia, on average, Australians eat 18 litres per person of ice cream a year. And that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I think uh, on in that bell curve, I know where I am. And, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and it's not good. <laughs> hey, there's no shame in this. I'm not judging you. I'm, I'm right there with you. But the thing is, we are the third highest consumers per capita of ice cream on earth. Wow. The second highest is the US at 20.8, I think it is, litres per person. Have a guess. What do you reckon is the, what is the highest consuming per capita of ice cream country on earth? Oh, I, you know, I want to say somewhere like, um, like France. Sure. Um, you can if you want, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> in fact, I don't remember where France sits in, in the list, actually. Um, but it's, I love this, New Zealand. Oh, yeah. Uh, the yeah. highest consumers of ice cream. I don't know whether that's because they actually have quite an old industry in New Zealand. It goes back a long time there in ice cream industry, but also they have fantastic dairy products. I don't know, mm. um, you know, what the, what the story of that is, but there you go. So New Zealand are the highest consumers of ice cream per year on the planet. Anyway, like I said, ice cream is interesting. Um, it's, it's a food type that, and I'm sure there are others, but it's, it's a manufactured food type, food type that has all three to be ice cream. It has to have all three of the main states of matter in it. It needs to have solids, liquids, and gases, or it ain't ice cream anymore. Um, it basically, basically, ice cream is tiny particles of solid ice and solid fat globules surrounding um, air bubbles inside a liquid sugar solution. 
That's ultimately what you've got. So in terms of physical chemistry, it's kind of weird, <laughs> but mm. it needs all those things to be as good as it can be. And the ice crystals are important. You know what it's like when, you know, you pull out the, the ice cream that you either knew or didn't know has been melted and refrozen and it's icy and gross. Yeah. Yep. This is to do with the size of the ice crystals. And so basically you can tell, your mouth can tell that there are ice crystals in there when they get bigger than about 50 microns. That's about the point where you go, oh, there's something not right with this. Generally speaking, in ice cream, you want things in the sort of, you know, maybe 20 to 40 micron range. You need them, you need them in there, but you can't, they can't be too big. Um, and to put that in perspective for people, I, I think a human hair is about 70 microns across. Yeah, 50, 50 to 100 microns, depending on okay. your... Or in my, yeah. case, in my case, zero microns. <laughs> a, Shane, a Shane hair is zero microns across. Yeah. But yeah, so it's... And 50 microns is about... It's about as small as you can see with your eyes if yep. you've got half these and eyes, which I don't. Uh, but, you know, in theory, that's what you can see. Anyway, so you want your, your ice crystal smaller than that. And of course, when you melt ice cream and you refreeze it, you're freezing it slowly. And that means there's time for large ice crystals to occur. And so you get these great strips of, of ice in there, which are crunchy and, and disappointing, actually. Anyway, so notwithstanding the fact that it can go a bit awful like that, ice cream is great generally, but it's not all good. Like anything that we manufacture and consume, and especially anything that has a significant commercial um, uh, imperative, it has an environmental impact. There was a study um, that came out in 2019 um, looking at the environmental impact of ice cream. And what they were actually comparing was vanilla ice cream to chocolate ice cream and looking at which has the greater environmental uh, footprint. And they even studied premium vanilla and, you know, cheap economy vanilla and premium chocolate and common as much chocolate. Um, the difference is interesting because it's not much. But if you think about getting your ice cream wherever you get it from unless you make it yourself but even then to some extent you've got to actually manufacture the stuff you've got to grow the things the vanilla beans you've got to grow the cows and the pasture you know the cocoa beans whatever it needs to be produced you need to get all that stuff then you've got to make it you've got to actually make things cold you've got to mix things up then you've got to chuck it inside containers you've got to move it around you've got to store it um, and at the end of all that you've still got these bits of machinery and plastic containers and whatever else that are going to go somewhere. So there are lots of points of impact. What was interesting is that across both types, that is vanilla and chocolate, the biggest impact of primary production, absolutely the biggest bit. The next biggest thing that is noteworthy is refrigerants because, of course, many of them, will they will leak to some extent, and there is a lot of them that will have an impact on the ozone layer, and therefore they have a global warming impact. So that And that's both in the manufacture and the transport and the storage, both at home and in retailers. So there's a lot of places where that leaks out. Um, fossil fuels for transport are a massive impact, but also um, they are for packaging. You get ice cream in a plastic container, and, you know, that's, mm. that's plastic forever now, whether you like it or yeah. not. Yeah. Anyway, um, the only thing is difference between the two of them. There's actually not much difference. Chocolate and vanilla is not a lot of difference unless the production of the cocoa beans has meant a change in the land use. If it's a significant change in land use, then you have big, fat global warming issues to deal with there and it becomes a much, much bigger issue. So it doesn't. ice cream is great, but it doesn't come without an impact. The other impact, of course, on a much smaller level is brain freeze. Um, if you are... You eat your ice cream quickly, and why wouldn't you? You want to have the sensation as quickly as possible. Um, uh, and by the way, if I've got this correct, I believe the scientific term is spinopalatine ganglioneuralgia, uh, or brain freeze, or ice cream headache. Um, essentially what happens here is you eat cold things quickly. It cools down your, your palate, 
Um, which of course your body goes, oh my God, that's cold. That's no good. Here's some blood to warm that up for you. And then it goes, oh, you're warm now. I'll pull that out again. And so you get this constriction and dilation of blood vessels quite quickly, um, which are picked up um, in your, you know, by, by nerves uh, in your, in your uh, sinuses, et cetera. Um, and that ultimately leads to brain freeze because your head thinks it senses this as being something that's happening in your forehead. One quick thing I'll mention about that, by the way, is that in, in, uh, in 2015, I think, 7-Eleven trademarked the term brain freeze. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so just the fact that we've used it several uh, times in the show means that we probably owe them something, but they get could, nothing. Yeah, we could be in trouble. Chris KP, thanks so much for that uh, important stuff. I'm going to cut back on my 18 litres, uh, my 28 litres, back to 18 some I'll send it to me. I'll, I'll take it. But uh, great, uh, great going through this. Folks, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Professor Nancy Baxter from the University of Melbourne. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. Triple R. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane, and with me now is Professor Nancy Baxter. Nancy has been on the show before. She's the head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Welcome back, Nancy. Good to be here. Now, um, how are you first? I mean, this is a, a trying time, especially for someone in your position. You know, you're at the, the epicentre of many of the, you know, the, the modelling and all the different things going on in, in a population and health school. How, how are things going for you? Well, I, I think I was hoping to, I think we were all hoping to start 2022 in a very different way, um, but, but that is what it is. I think that one of my challenges is, um, you know, how, how in some ways disappointing our reaction to this wave has been from a, um, a governmental standpoint, um, but how resilient we have been even in the face uh, of something like this. Um, so I, I wish we'd started the year in a different way and had been able to kind of, um, start, start kind of living with COVID, living our lives more normally, but, uh, but these are the cards we've been dealt. Yeah, it's not ideal. And I think, um, uh, some people at least have been surprised by how, how hard we've been hit by this, this latest wave. I guess there's a lot of others who would, who are looking at it from the information coming in from overseas and must've, must've seen a lot of this coming. What, what are your thoughts on that? But what I'd say is everyone had very little time to react because, you know, we, we found out about this, what, November 26th, November 24th. Um, so there's very little time to react. Um, but it was, you know, there were clear signals that this was going to be a considerable problem for everyone, um, you know, both from what happened in South Africa, but from what was starting to happen in, in the UK uh, when we were um, when we were thinking about what would happen in uh, Australia. And actually, you know, it. Omicron got into Australia very early before even it had been declared a, a problem. So it had gotten here very early. We also had very early examples of mass spreading events in places that we wouldn't have expected mass spreading events to have happened. So that um, that nightclub in Newcastle, right, where everyone is supposed to be infected, and everyone everyone was, everyone got infected, everyone is supposed to be vaccinated, and, um, and and you know they had a mass spreading event with over two hundred people uh, contracting Omicron. Um, so so very high rate of transmission. So not only did we have examples from elsewhere that this was going to be a problem, we had examples from actually um, uh, in Australia. So we had very little time to prepare for this much more infectious variant, uh, something that was going to evade immunity and, and spread through the community much faster than, than other variants had. But, um, but we knew that it was coming and we didn't even take the small amount of time to prepare to actually prepare. In fact, 
we decided to continue with the roadmap that had been developed for you know three variants ago. We decided to stay with that roadmap, even though you know our destination had actually changed. We were still going in the same direction, which is yeah. remarkable. Yeah, it's interesting. Now we 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 can't really look at the news at the moment without hearing about Omicron, Omicron, Omicron all the time. But what about Delta? Is Delta still sort of you know hanging around, causing problems? Because of course. You know, as as we know, that was that was really hitting people a lot harder early on, and you know, Omicron's still hitting them harder. But is Delta still floating around in Australia or around the world? Is it still sort of competing to some degree, or has Omicron knocked it out almost entirely? Well, um, you know, it, it has been. So part of the hospitalization and and a big part of the ICU has been, been related to Delta, um, and you know. I, uh, you know, Omicron does uh, outcompete um, Delta amongst vaccinated folks. That's for sure. Um, but I think part of the reason why uh, Delta has persisted is I don't think Omicron competes as well against Delta in those that are unvaccinated. Um, so there's been some Delta persisting in that group. Um, now that everyone's kind of, or many, many people have had Omicron, um, Omicron, having had Omicron before, does protect you against Delta more than having had Delta before protects you against Omicron. So I think once the unvaccinated folks have gotten Omicron, you know, they become protected from Delta. So then Delta will die out. But I think it took Delta longer to die out than some of the other variants that were more effective transmitters, even amongst, amongst everyone. So mm. Delta versus Alpha, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, or alpha versus uh, the initial COVID the, or ancestral strain. Um, so I, I do think that that's why kind of you had this long hang, long tail of Delta. And, you know, when they talked about, oh, well, Omicron's now 95% of, of our COVID, you're going like, but, but 5% of, you know, 30,000 is a lot more Delta than we had before. Um, so I, I do think that Delta is going to um, go away just because, again, People who've had Omicron are, are protected from Delta, at least at least for from getting it at least for you know, a month. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you do those numbers. I mean, I'm, and and for our regular listeners, you know, who know I rarely ever swear in the program. I'm about to, so so you know, prepare yourselves. But you know, a, a small part of a shitload is still a shitload, right? I mean, and this is one of the things we we don't seem to be able to get our head around at the moment in the commentary is that when you're talking of tens of thousands. Even if one, if you have one percent of that being really ill or hospitalised, that is that is a very significant number of people we have to worry about. Absolutely, and um, you know we're, we're we're just very fortunate that that Omicron has been less severe. I mean, part of why it's less severe is because it's infecting different people. So it's infecting people that Delta never would have infected. It's infecting pe- people who would have been protected by their vaccine. So their vaccine is protecting them from serious outcome, but not from transmission. So when we say it's less severe. I guess you could say actually it's more severe because those people would never have gotten it in the first place. But in any event, it, it appears less severe, largely because of that protection from vaccination, but then also because it does seem to be less severe in and of itself. Mm. Now, Nancy, there's been a lot of talk at the moment about the peak, you know, it's getting to the peak. And can you explain to me how it is we have any clue about this when it seems almost as though what we're really measuring is availability of rapid tests and the willingness of people to stand in a line for a PCR for three to five hours when they're ill. How, how is it that we can sort of make these assumptions about getting to a peak when it almost feels as though the numbers might be coming down because people have used all those rapid test Christmas gifts that were given as a joke? Well, uh, they were they were they were very uh, very uh, very good joke. They were a joke that actually became um, became mm. very much necessary. Um, you know, and there were some um, very 
very forward thinking people who made their Christmas uh, Christmas present decisions. Uh, and thank goodness for them. Um, uh, yeah, so so it's become a lot more difficult to track uh, the outbreak. Um, there have been a number of things. One is the change of, of uh, you know, availability of PCR testing limited to those who are genuine close contacts. And by genuine close contacts, I mean household contacts. Clearly, if you've been you know, with someone for three hours and 59 minutes in an enclosed setting and the person has COVID, you are a close contact. But um, I digress. Um, so a change in the definition of who's even eligible for testing uh, and then the lack of availability testing those, those long lines that were uh, really uh, disincentivizing people uh, and the um, non-availability of rat testing and then the um, no place to report it for, for uh, a length of time. So this has made it difficult just to track cases. Although what I would say is at this point, you know, even just tracking the cases, it really does legitimately look like like things are going down. Uh, but, you know, the other things to follow are um, the case positivity rate. So, you know, that that's a pretty good marker of how much COVID there is, that in, uh, is around. And when you had those long lines and you had that change in case definition households only, you saw a, a, a huge increase in your case positivity that's now starting to come down. So that is very encouraging. Hospitalization rates as well. Although we continue to see hospitalization in some jurisdictions going up, the rate at which it is going up is declining. Um, and the ICUs really aren't, aren't spiking that much. Now, part of that is challenging to interpret because as we just talked about, you know, del- Delta is slowly kind of decreasing, uh, not decrease, not uh, immediately eliminated. So some of that, that is related to the mix of Omicron and Delta. So it's a little bit more difficult to interpret hospitalizations in ICU. Um, but overall, taking everything to, into account, um, you know, it, it does, it, it certainly does seem like things have peaked in many of the states and that we're on the, you know, the right side of the, of the wave. But, you know, it's important for everyone to think about that because mm-hmm. that means that when you're at that peak, it means at least half of the people who are going to get sick, you know, if it's a symmetrical wave, half of the people are still to get sick, half of the people are still to suffer severe consequences. And the other thing is we don't know that it's going to be symmetric. We don't know that it's going to go down as quickly as it went up. Probably part of that curve will be. It'll go down quite quickly. But then if you look at South Africa, actually, there's been a long tail. uh, And they're nowhere near the numbers that they were before this started in terms of the number of cases per day. The number of cases per day is much higher now in South Africa than it was before. uh, And so it seems that there's now a plateau. Um, So we don't know exactly what we're going to get as people start to you know, leave the hermit kingdom of their house, which is what I'm doing. So as they start to kind of leave and do their more normal activities, and importantly, um, as kids start to go back to school. Yeah. And, and we saw a bit of that last year, didn't we, where we sort of came off the peak here in Melbourne and and then we plateaued for quite a while. We could kind of hovered around a few thousand cases for, well, indefinitely until we hit, hit Christmas. That was pretty much our, our level. Yeah. And you knew that eventually that was either going to continue to go down or it was going to go up. And probably um, even without Omicron, we would have seen uh, some spikes in Delta with the Christmas holiday mm. and likely seen more with um, uh, with, uh, you know, going into into colder weather. So it's not like that was ever going to kind of stay completely stable. But yeah. And, and importantly, in that in, in our numbers in Melbourne, you know, if we had kept on some of the um, some of the things like mask wearing, some of the restrictions, uh, likely that case would have been case number would have been driven down to Sydney level. But we kept opening up um, just when you know the 
the effective reproduction rate was coming down, we'd open up and that something else and then it would go up again. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, it's an interesting study in how you know, relaxing just a little bit earlier um, than otherwise you might can just lead to this plateau. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating how these things, all, all these parameters feed into our success. Now, you're, you're a surgeon. Um, we, we are currently in a situation where, you know, the majority of elective surgery is, is cancelled here in Victoria. And I think we, we, we should be clear what, about what this means, because for many people, they're on these surgical waiting lists for sometimes in excess of a year. And many in chronic pain, many have, you know, essentially almost life-halting conditions that, that need these surgeries. I, I mean, what, exa- what, what is your view of this? Because, you know, we have a, we have a situation here where sometimes we, we talk about the hospitals going to these brown alerts and various things, but as soon as we stop doing surgery, there must be some enormous backlog and an enormous percentage of our population that is, you know, really suffering. Yeah, uh, you know, so so we've looked at um, surgery rates in and uh, emergency presentations for surgical conditions in Ontario, actually, during during the waves of um, COVID there. And, and uh, you know, on, Ontario has, you know, fairly long wait lists comparatively uh, for many conditions. Uh, and, you know, it's expected that it's going to be years, really, before we're fully through the wait lists that have developed because uh, of the outbreak. Um, you know, I must say that um, for some types of um, conditions, so cancer, uh, you know, generally um, most places manage to get the people through uh, and the wait, although it's extended, isn't extended excessively excessively long. Uh, And, you know, it's horrible to hear about people's cancer surgery being canceled, but really that is the last type of surgery that gets canceled. So, you know, I'm reasonably confident that those people are getting done in a, in a, in a, in a decent amount of time. You, know, you, you are concerned about people who it's affecting their quality of life. So people who need a hip replaced or knee replaced, mm-hmm. and they continue to decline in terms of their physical activity because of that. But there, there are also these groups of patients who have, you know, what could become life-threatening um, de- problems and certainly are you know, life-debilitating problems. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually a, a colorectal surgeon, so I used to have uh, inflammatory bowel disease patients, patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And these are young people who have in- intestinal blockages. They're just not quite bad enough to have to go into the emergency room. But these are people that are, you know, so, you know, you have 20, 25-year-olds that are putting all their food in a blender. And this is how they're living and they're living with chronic abdominal pain and, and, um, you know, just, 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 they need surgery and it's hard enough to get those people in as urgently as they should get to surgery in normal times. But I think those people are waiting a long time and they're ending up coming into the emergency room in a, an emergent state that really um, is not a good way to manage those patients. So um, I, I feel bad for all patients in, in these circumstances, but I particularly feel badly for those. Mm. I, I know a few people in this situation where they've had, um, you know, delays, even, even pre-COVID, you know, sometimes things come up, surgeon gets sick, you know, whatever, and there's a there's a reason for a delay. I, I mean, the, the impact on, on some patients' mental health there is quite substantial, isn't it? Because when they've been waiting for such a long time for these life-transforming surgeries, it can, it can have quite a substantial impact. Yeah, and often you have somebody who's arranged to be off work. Um, they've arranged for care for their children or, you know, if they're older, their children have arranged to be off work to care for their mom or dad. So it, it's not just one single patient in one single procedure. You know, you, you have everyone around that person that's usually done a lot of preparation to be able to care for that person after their surgery. Uh, and that's just all, all blown up. 
So, you know, sometimes we have to delay, postpone, cancel surgery when I was a surgeon. And, and it was a terrible, terrible conversation to have to have with a patient and their family. Most of them were understanding um, that, you know, generally it was when nothing else could be done, but it was incredibly disruptive. It was not a conversation you ever wanted to have. Yeah. Now, Nancy, we're, we're about a week out, in some cases a little bit less from the reopening of schools um, across the board. And at this point in time, when we're, we're talking about this on, on, you know, Sunday the 23rd of January, of course, um, there doesn't seem to be a comprehensive plan in place beyond face-to-face, back-to-normal, maybe some windows open if you can open them, which is not true for a lot of schools. Um, and even if you can open them, I know I inspected the school the other day and there were all the windows were on one side of the classroom, so there was no no airflow. I mean, we have a million kids in in Melbourne or in Victoria um, who are, who are going to go back to school in just over a week. What, what does that look like from the point of view of, of the spread of this virus? And, you know, is this the equivalent of 40,000 restaurants with 25 people in them? Well, almost certainly there's going to be an increase in transmission uh, when we open, and particularly uh, an increase in transmission in that age group and parents of children in that age group. Um, before before schools shut down, um, in one of the press conferences, they gave some numbers that were very interesting. So about 30% of the cases were in school-aged children um, when they were in school with Delta. Um, now they're about 5%. So uh, you know, you can see that, that schools will drive transmission um, amongst children. I mean, that's not a surprise. I think all mm. of us know that when you bring um, children from different families, different groups together to mix and mingle in a school, it is going to increase, you know, COVID transmission within that school. Um, and, you know, certainly there are some states that have uh, made moves or signals that they were going to prepare for this to make the classroom a safer place to study and a safer place to work. Um, but it does seem that um, what the plans were are different than what's been executed. Uh, and, you know, the kids are now going to be back in school um, without kind of everything in place that could protect them, uh, including vaccination. Uh, and I, certainly I think that that's unfortunate. I mean, part of that's the whole Omicron timing, which has been, uh, ideal for the virus, um, but certainly not ideal for us. Um, so that's part of it. But part of it is just kind of, you know, I, I think like so many things, we we really thought that all we had to do was get vaccination rates very high, and we have fantastic. It's been it's been you know amazing that Australia has done so well with getting people vaccinated. But we thought that that's all we had to do, and we didn't have to modify anything else. Living with the virus meant ignoring the virus, and that's where we are. Mm-hmm. We we also have the scenario of schools. We we talk a lot about the kids, but this is a workplace for the teachers. And I know a lot of the teachers are going to be triple vaccinated before the start of term, but there'll probably be a lot that are also not triple vaccinated. And there'll also be a very large number that are either um, suffering from other health conditions or immune compromised or in, in, in some way at risk. I mean, what's that going to look like for them, do you think? Because we, you know, in every other regard, when we talk about workplaces in in our in our society we're very clear about you know you and i we've been working from home various people working from home we're all doing it we all understand that it's the safe thing we've been told it's the safe thing for a very long time but now we're about to tell teachers no get back in the classroom it doesn't matter 
Yeah, staff at schools, um, they're essential workers. You know, if we're sending kids back to school, obviously they need the staff there to supervise and teach them. So, uh, so they're essential workers. And if they're essential workers, what we have to do is reduce their risk as much as possible to acquiring COVID at the workplace. It doesn't really matter how likely they are to acquire COVID anywhere else. You know, we need to reduce their risk of acquiring COVID at the workplace. And we need to make sure that, you know, all the reasonable things have been done to to achieve that. So, you know, they really should have been prioritized for boosters and all boosted before they came back to, to class. They should be wearing N95 masks. They sh- there should be adequate ventilation and there should be adequate spacing of, of children. And there needs to be a very robust plan for what happens if anyone's, you know, develops symptoms. Um And as well, um, you know, there needs to be a plan for the tea rooms and the lounges and all those types of things, which are where COVID is going to spread. Like that's also where COVID is going to spread. And people might say, well, you know, that's not with the children, but that's again in the workplace. So these, the, the places where teachers gather, that's part of the workplace and making sure that, you know, there's some place where they can rest that's safe, uh, is essential as well. So, um, I really feel for teachers. I think a lot of teachers are really distressed because, you know, they want kids back. This is their, their life's work is educating children. I mean, they obviously, you know, they have a passion for it or they wouldn't be in it. Um, And so they want the kids back in school, but they also want to be in a workplace that actually uh, values their safety. And I think many are not feeling that. Yeah, it's interesting. The analogy I used the other day, it's like we're all on the 747 and there's been a bit of a delay but the you know the captain comes on and says you know look we've had some problems with the landing gear but we've decided to fix it while we're in the air um sorry about the delay but we'll try and get you where we're going on time and it's sort of like a, a ludicrous analogy in a way but but one that sort of in, in in a sense matches what we're we're talking about here we we know the things that we need to do and and some of those have been done you know i know at uh, my son's school they have about half of the hepa filters that they they would need to to have them in all the appropriate places which also then puts the the principal in a difficult position of choosing, you know, which teachers get them and which don't, you know, this. And so the schools will probably buy them, buy more themselves. You know, we do know what's required. We just haven't quite got there, it seems. And I mean, if we had a four to six sort of week sort of delay or just change in status, I mean, we'd get a lot more done, wouldn't we? Especially in terms of second vaxxers in the primary school kids and all all the teachers being boosted. It seems like we could make a lot of progress. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that um, a delay really isn't about a long delay. It's about a relatively short delay. And um, so how much that would would cause, you know, a problem for children and, and their um, and their parents, um, you know, I, I don't know whether, you know, it's all about balancing the, the risks versus the benefits. Uh, I think one of the things is that um, we haven't heard from enough teachers in this. We hear a lot from um, certain voices in, in pediatrics, certain voices in mental health. But what we don't hear a lot from is actually the people who um, are teachers who uh, are passionate about education and who are the ones that are the real, you know, who's, who's, who has the most at stake, really, uh, of getting kids back to school and keeping them in school. So I really wish that we'd hear more teachers' voices. I don't think that they've been allowed to speak up. Uh, and I think that that's import- unfortunate because I, I think that they're a very important voice to contribute to to our understanding of what's going to happen when kids go back to school and also what's at stake, um, mm-hmm. both positively in terms of getting back 
kids back to learning, but also the risks uh, and and how people feel about the risks that they're going to be facing. Yeah. Well, Nancy, just before I let you go, um, just looking towards the future a little bit, it, it seems like, you know, regardless of the variants coming out and so forth, and there may be more, you know, Omicron may not be the last. It, it seems as though we know a lot of the things um, that we need to do, but it also seems as though there's some exciting things on the horizon with regards to treatments and second generation vaccines and so forth. Uh, I mean, what what should we expect in the sort of next six months? Well, um, I think it would be great if we could have second generation vaccines that um, are, are not as easily, uh, well, not easily, but don't end up um, uh, becoming um, part of the vaccine variance strategy, you know, evading the vaccines becomes the variant strategy. So something that's more resistant to that um, would be great. Of six months, that's a, a really a big ask for developing something like that. So I don't think that that is on the horizon for six months. Um, you know, there may be better treatments. There's a lot of a lot of trials going on. So I'd imagine better treatments, better preventive treatments, maybe better post-exposure treatments or better, you know, for household exposures, you know, nasal sprays, things like that. I think that that's certainly um, things that are developing. Um, and, you know, what I'm, I'm hopeful is that maybe with the boosters and the Omicron wave, we're going to have a bit of a breather. So it's not going to be like this every kind of four to six months we get another major wave. So we get a bit of a breather. And so, you know, potentially we could do more to get things in place for the next next wave. And maybe that'll never come. Um, but I would say that it will come and it'll come as our immunity wanes and, you um, from both uh, not, uh, from both uh, convalescence, so both from previous infection as well as from vaccines, we will have another wave of a new variant um, that is uh, evasive to our our vaccination to our to our immunity, um, and that 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 will happen. It'll happen after a long enough time that we will have thought that everything's cool and we don't have to worry about it anymore, and we will have done nothing in the interim to actually prepare for it, and it will. Um, and because we didn't prepare for it, it will cause more disease, more disability, more death and more disruption than it needed to. Um, we'll get through it, too, but um, it will be unfortunate that we're not going to learn from our lack of preparation for this wave. Yeah, we could learn from our history. And to finish on a light note, uh, Nancy, you're, I mean, you're from you're from Canada. Are Australians the only one who call the rapid test rats? Um, I think I think. Uh, well, well. Canadians call it rats as well. I think that England's the only place that calls it the lateral flow test. And I don't even know where that comes from. Like, what's lateral? What's flow? (laughs) I don't even get that. Like, rapid antigen test does describe what it is. um, But I'm not sure where the lateral flow comes from. I I initially thought they were doing something with a straw or something. Quite frankly, I couldn't figure out what it was until, like, someone told me, no, 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 that's their rapid antigen test. Oh, now I get it. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, yeah, no, I think it's called, uh, called rat test uh, quite widely. Oh, it's good to know. Good to know that we're not alone. Professor Nancy Baxter, head of the Melbourne School of Population Global Health at University of Melbourne, thanks so much for being our guest again on Einstein & Gogo. No doubt this will not be the last time we speak to you uh, this year. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. We're pretty much out of time, so we're going to have to hand over to the next team as it is right on 12 o'clock pretty much. Next week on the show, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Eric Levy. He is an ENT surgeon and the guy who put together that Go Low, Go Slow video that so many people have watched 
indicating how to get those swabs up the nose when you're doing the COVID test. So uh, Eric was on the show last year. We've got him back to talk about how things have been going for him in the surgery world and how he's suddenly been been given a huge amount of fame with regards to that fantastic video he put out to help us swab ourselves and our kids. So until next week, I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for listening to us yet again. It's great to be back for 2022. We've got a huge amount of science coming for you for the rest of the year. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a great Sunday and we'll chat to you again soon. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.